So while the children are going out, let me say this. We do have prayer cards out on the table for the adults and for the children. We have little, okay, also for adults if they want them. We have little bracelets, uh, rubber bracelets. Jordan has some over there. Pastor Joe has one on. Let, let me just tell you, moms, when these things get shot around the house and you're cleaning up the house, finding these little things, don't get upset with us. Pray for us. That's, that's what they're there for. They're very effective that way. Uh, if the children don't pray for us, the adults clean them up and pray for us. So it's, it's a double encouragement there to pray for our ministry. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 15. My wife and I uh, have had for many years now a hobby of collecting missionary biographies. We have a shelf uh, right next to, actually right next to our dining table now there in, in Gota in our apartment. And I don't, know, I've, I don't know that I've ever counted how many missionary biographies we have, but I would guess somewhere around 100 to 150 different books that tell about the lives of different missionaries. And it's been a joy to read many of those. I, I must admit I have not read them all. Some of those were my wife's books, and I've never, just never picked them up. But one of my favorite missionary biographies is, is a two-volume biography, a big old thick two-volume biography of the life of J. Hudson Taylor. Taylor was the founder and faithful missionary of the China Inland Mission. In 1876, Taylor spoke to a group of believers about the founding of the China Inland Mission, and in his lifetime, this mission sent out 900 missionaries to the country of China. And back then, they did not, they did not raise support like we do now. I think it's a I think it's a wise thing for the, for the missionary to go out with the support they need. But back then, Taylor and his philosophy was just send them out and the Lord will provide. So he had sent in his lifetime 900 missionaries out. And in addition to those 900 missionaries, the China Inland Mission recorded that they had 2,000 national workers during this time period. And even with so many workers, some questioned how the work in China would move forward. China has always been a difficult land to reach with the gospel. But Taylor had a confidence that God would use their efforts to glorify himself. And he explained to this group that the foundation, uh, he explained to them the foundation on which the China Inland Mission built their mission. And he said that we built this entire mission on three great truths. First of all, that there is a God. Second, that he has spoken to us through his Bible, through his word, the Bible. And third, he means what he says. And then he concluded that statement, oh, the joy of trusting him. And it was with that mentality that the China Inland Mission sent so many missionaries out to the work in China. They built this mission upon the promises of God's work among lost people. And we could ask this question this morning, what has the Lord promised in regard to world evangelization? When a missionary responds to the leading of the Lord and says, Lord, I, I will go if you will let me, what can he expect the blessing of the Lord to be on his ministry. When we give and we pray for missions, do we do it just because the missionaries seem to be nice people? Or do we really have a confidence in God's stated intentions for world outreach? What has he said that he is sure to do? 
What does our God say to both the, as we heard this morning, all are involved in missions? What has he said to both the goer and the sender? As you send these three men out this week, what are your thoughts toward what God has said he will promise to do through such trips? This morning we want to turn to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to focus on one verse, verse 13, later in the sermon. But I want to, first of all, give you some context. It's always important to understand the context in which we're looking at a passage. And I I want to, first of all, that you see, that we see this morning, what the Lord is promising in the beginning of this passage. In regard to missions, there is perhaps no greater passage than Romans 15, 8 through 33. And I want to read the passage for you, first of all, this morning. We're just going to read the verses 8 through 13. Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, or it is written, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. This is the most extended theology of missions we find in the New Testament. But the passage is not so much a systematic treatment of the the theology of missions. Instead, it's given much more as a personal report from a missionary, from Paul, of what he believes and what he is expecting God to do. We do not find an extended doctrine here. We find Paul's personal conviction concerning what God is doing in world outreach. And first of all, in this passage, he declares to us the purpose for missions. In the verses 8 through 12, Paul tells us the ultimate purpose is that Gentiles might glorify God. When you read those verses, you find the Gentiles mentioned repeatedly. And Paul gives us a declaration that Christ came to serve the Jews. That's the first statement there. He came to serve the circumcision, the Jewish people. And we would think then that this is all about the Jewish people, all about Israel. But then he, he pushes straight toward a second purpose. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And Paul gives us a declaration here that Christ's coming to serve the Jews had the end goal of Christ fulfilling the ultimate plan that God, of God that the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. And the ultimate purpose of Christ's coming, given in this passage, is not the salvation of souls. That is not to say the salvation of souls is not important. It is of utmost importance. So important that Christ died on the cross to save your soul. But the salvation of souls is leading men to do what they in their sinful condition could never do. What man in his fallen state could not do since the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us all men have fallen short of God's glory. And in that fallen state, they cannot glorify him. 
And because of this, missions work exists. Missions is part of God's plan to restore the ability, the ability of men to glorify him. Perhaps this morning as we were singing songs, perhaps some of you, I would hope most of you, were really able to just to glorify God with your voice. You know what? There may have been some of you that because you've never been saved from your sins, you couldn't really glorify God. You could sing, but it wasn't heartfelt. It wasn't with a thankfulness for what God has done for you. The purpose of Jesus Christ's coming is so that we might glorify God. And so with this declared goal, Paul moves forward in this chapter, and in, in the verses 13 and 14, Paul speaks to the Roman church. And we will look specifically this morning, as said, at verse 13. But before we do so, let's just get an idea of what comes in the remainder of this chapter. In the verses 15 through 29, we read about Paul's past, present, and future involvement in missions work. So it's not just that Paul gave us a really lofty theological uh, explanation at the beginning and then said, but you know what, that's your guy's job to figure out what to do with this. He says, and because of that, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm praying for, here's what I'm looking for, here's what I'm praising God for. In the verses 15 through 21, then, we read about his personal contribution to missions. We read the pronoun I repeatedly here, and Paul is saying, missions is all about Gentiles glorifying God, and here is my contribution to that goal. And then in the verses 22 through 29, we read Paul's thinking concerning the future. And then in the verses 30 through 31, we read his request for prayer. So in the beginning of this passage, Paul states that the purpose of Christ's service is that the Gentiles might glorify God, and he sets that up as the ultimate goal of missions. Then he tells us about his work in missions. He uses uh, uh, the promises of God regarding the purposes of God's inten- uh, his intentions, the things that God is wanting to accomplish, and then he gives us information about his work in missions. But in between these two sections, in the verses 13 and 14, Paul addresses this church to whom he is writing. The church in Rome. As he wrote this, Paul had never visited this church. It was likely started by people that came to Christ at Pentecost. And then they returned to Rome and they started the church. But Here Paul desires to contribute through his writing to them and instructing them concerning their ministry. As an apostle, he writes this church. And he seems to be saying here that although neither he nor it seems any other apostle has visited them, the work of the church is going quite well. The work is going forward. And we read in verse 13 a desire, or we could call it a prayer here, that Paul has for the local assembly in Rome. So let's look now at the verses 13 and 14 specifically. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and are able to instruct one another. What we find here is is a prayer. 
in verse 13, a benediction. He desires that God does something for them. And in this prayer, we read his thoughts and desires concerning these believers. This is a national church he is reflecting upon, and he gives his viewpoint here concerning this church. Our goal as missionaries is to plant, as we saw this morning in the first service, indigenous churches. A church that can support itself and govern itself and propagate itself without the aid of a missionary. A so-called national church. And that's exactly what this church is in Rome. It's a national church. The entire ministry of the church is done with no help of a missionary or apostle. And Paul's perspective on this church is that God will do something for and through these people. And then in verse 14, we read that he is convinced that they are able to do the work without help from outside. They are an indigenous church. He writes, I myself am satisfied that you yourselves are full of goodness. In other words, there is evidence of the Lord's working in your life. And that you are filled with all knowledge. And that you are even able to instruct one another. That's the edification that has to be going on in a church ministry. And Paul said, I am satisfied. I am convinced that you guys can do this. He says in these two verses, you are a strong unity. You can expect the blessing of God, and you are able to do the work. And the question we want to raise this morning then is, is this the perspective we have concerning missions work? And is this what you are praying for? And is it what we as missionaries are working toward? Do we really believe that God can do certain things for and through national believers without our help going forward? That they can be filled with goodness and full of knowledge and well able to instruct each other. And the question that missionaries often face is, can the church survive without me? I must admit, early in our ministry, when we took a trip like this one, I questioned, what's it going to be like when we come back? Is it going to be a shipwreck? But the even better question would be, can this church move forward and thrive without me? Are they full of knowledge and able to minister to each other? All ministries have a limited time for their work within a given church. And the question that it all comes down to is, can God really glorify himself through this group of Gentile believers? If this is not our perspective, then we need to adjust our thinking. And we see in this passage that there is a blessing that we can expect to be upon a church on the mission field. You can expect God to do something. Sometimes when we look at verses like verse 13, we are tempted to view it as a a simple formality that has no real bearing on how we think and how we act. This is, as I said, it's a benediction. It's an appeal for divine blessing. Sometimes we speak of, of a church service having a benediction. And what that word typically means is a prayer for God's blessing as we all go our separate ways. And often we see these appeals to God in the Bible, and we see them as formalities, and we really, unfortunately, do not pay much attention to them. 
It's, it's almost like, so Paul finished this section about the Gentiles glorifying God, and now he's going to say a little formal statement that makes it all sound pretty, and then he's going to move on with something else that's important. We, we're tempted sometimes to think this way. But this is, just, this is not just a polite, pious statement that God threw into his word for formality's sake. There's a reason why verse 13 is here. As a literary form in the Bible, benedictions are very common. Much like when we write letters today, we have a salutation and a closing. And in the New Testament letters, we find something similar. We find common statements that begin and end the letters, the epistles. When we read something like this in the Bible, how do we view it? Do we see it simply as a formality? Are we quick to pass over it without giving it much thought? Here we find a benediction. In my view of verse 13 is that it's not just a formality. If my view is that it's just a formality that Paul tossed in for the sake of the letter sounding nice, then we cannot expect to get very much for us out of this verse. But I believe that there's a real purpose in statements like this in the Bible. They're not just pious formalities, but rather God wants to teach us something through what he led his apostle to pray and to write in this verse. Yes, it's a literary convention, but at the same time, it is a declaration of the Holy Spirit working in Paul as he wrote this. And what we find here is what we can expect God to do in the hearts of people. And it is in, it is in the form of a prayer that indicates God will indeed do this in the hearts of people. Paul is saying, I'm praying to you, God, to do exactly what you can do. And I believe what we do in missions and how you pray for missions should be greatly influenced by this prayer. We can look at this verse this way. These people really need this verse to be more than just a nicety in this letter. And Paul is praying and doing everything he does and writing what he writes here with the hope that God will do exactly what we find in this verse. So what is the blessing here? What can we expect from this verse in regard to world evangelization? He says, may the God of hope do certain things for you. And what are these things? What are the expectations from this verse? And the answer is that God would fill them with joy and peace. That's the prayer here. May God fill you with all joy and all peace. Why did Paul pray this for the national church in a pagan world? Why are these things so important in the mission work? And we need to understand why joy and peace are important here. What, what exactly is joy? One way to define a word is sometimes we can look at the opposite of that word. What is the opposite of joy? We could say sadness, despair. Depression? And being disheartened? What about peace? The opposite of that would be anxiety. They're agitated. They're lacking rest. Or they're, they're full of fret and worry. What would cause such sadness and anxiety in a church? And I believe one of the best answers in the context of this book is that they need joy and peace because of what they are facing in their society. In Romans 1, we read about men who deny God and 
worship the creation rather than the creator. They are perverse. The words that describe the Roman society in chapter 1 of this book, of this letter, uh, is, is words like ungodly, unrighteous, suppressing the truth, dishonoring God, futile in their thinking. They have foolish, darkened hearts. They claim to be wise but are fools. Instead of worshiping the God of glory, they are worshiping man and birds and animals and creeping things. They are impure and dishonor their bodies. They call God's truth a lie. They have this honorable passions. Then the passage, uh, the passage speaks about their perverseness. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They invent ways to do evil. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. All this describes the society in which this church in Rome ministered. Paul almost goes out of his way in chapter 1 to show us a society that the Roman church finds itself in. Rome was a reprobate society being punished by a righteous God. Now, I want you to think just for a second here about how many churches there are in this area of Ohio. It could be that, that you as a church don't see eye to eye with all the churches that preach the gospel, but there are believers in many of these churches that seek to honor God. Think of how many saved friends you have here in America, and maybe some of you have very few saved friends or none, but many of you have saved family and friends. We're very blessed. But now imagine that this church, Tri-County Bible Church, was the only church in the entire state of Ohio that was following Jesus Christ. The only church in a corrupt society. And this is exactly the setting we find the church in Rome in. They are ministering in a depraved society. Outside the doors of their homes is a spiritual battlefield. Where we minister in former East Germany, I do not believe that the depravity of the society has quite reached the level of Rome in Romans 1. But the years of humanism and atheism has led to a society that has become very corrupt. And there's not a lot of good churches in our area either. In the past, I've had conversations with some of our church about, about why we do not closely associate with churches in the ecumenical movement that really don't preach the true gospel. And I have often wished that I could say, now over here, though, that's a good group of brothers and sisters in Christ that we can have unity and fellowship with. But we do not have such churches in East Germany within several hours of us. We have church members driving over an hour to church because they could not find anything local. And when I say they could not find anything local, I'm not just saying that I like their music better than this one over here. I'm saying they could not find anything at all preaching the gospel of Christ in their local community. When you minister in such an environment, you feel isolated. And former East Germany is not the only place in the world where there is a lack of good churches. This is the case in many, many places around the globe. 
And these people in the Roman church find themselves isolated in an evil world. The entire society outside the church has no idea who the God of the Bible even is. Their society was filled with polytheism and pagan worship. The entertainment of the Roman society puts an exclamation point on how corrupt and evil the society was. There were stadiums built for the purpose of gladiator games where people were violently killed to the roar of a crowd. And the whole society was consumed by a lust for bloodshed as a form of entertainment. And then the theater was filled with sensuality and open lasciviousness. Nothing was too sacred or too private to portray on the stages of Rome. And here in the book of Romans, we find a church, and they are an oasis of God-fearing people in the midst of a desert of a pagan evil society. And the possibility of persecution at the hands of these people was very real. Christians were often the victims of the Colosseum, or they were crucified for their beliefs. Later in Paul's life, he would be in prison for his beliefs in this very city. How would you feel if that were the case here in Northeast Ohio? I believe that our country is very fast becoming such a pagan land. But up to this point, the effect of the gospel in the United States has served to somewhat limit the evil and depravity of our culture here. But you have missionaries that you pray for and that you support that are serving in cultures where the gospel's reach has been very limited or where the gospel has long been forgotten and rejected. That's the case where we minister. And as I said, I do not believe that the depravity of the society in Germany where we minister has quite reached the level of Rome in Romans 1. But the years of humanism and atheism has led to a society that is very corrupt. And our people see our church as a place of refuge. When we come together on Sunday, some people ask, how many services do you have? What do you do? We have one service. It lasts, the service itself lasts about an hour and a half or so. Our people are there from 10 to 1, 2 in the afternoon just fellowshipping and enjoying the time together. One of our favorite Sundays of the month is the first Sunday of the month because we just stay there almost the entire day. We eat together, we fellowship together. It is a place of refuge. And the expectation of Paul for churches around the world that are surrounded by evil And godlessness is that God is well able to fill these people who are surrounded by such an evil society with great joy and peace. No agitation or worry or sadness or fear, but joy and peace. And joy and peace fit hand in hand. They fit together. They complement each other. F.B. Meyer once said, Joy is peace dancing, and peace is joy at rest. And that's what God wants to do in his church. The work of Christ in the lives of the Roman church is allowed them to dance with joy and rest in peace. Paul prays, be filled with joy and peace even in the midst of a depraved and evil society. 
Now the question for us is, do we have this expectation that God will do this for us and other believers, and do we pray to this end? This is what should be happening in churches around the world. The church of Jesus Christ should be filled with joy and peace. The intention of God is not just that people be saved from the evil of this world. He wants his church to abound in hope. We read here, and I want to emphasize this with with the underlined words on, on the slide this morning. We read here, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, and it's implied all peace. And may you, through the, change, the, the changing power of the Holy Spirit, abound in hope. May the God of hope cause you to abound in hope, we read. Notice the wording here. Paul writes of being filled with all joy and all peace and an abundance of hope. Joy and peace and hope in his prayer are not just fleeting emotions. They describe the triumphant work thriving in the lives of these people. The triumphant work of Christ in their lives. Here we find a Gentile church who is thriving because of the mercy they have received from the Lord. This is not speaking of a church that's just getting by or that's just barely surviving. They are not just hanging on for dear life in their society. Paul's expectation is that joy and peace can fill them and that they can abound in hope. The expectation here is for a thriving church where the people are joyful and at peace. They are full of hope. Even when just on the other side of the door is a world of evil. The question for our mission work is what are we striving for? What are our prayers for our people? What are our goals in church planning? Do we desire that our people thrive in joy and peace, that they abound in hope? A church that is full of joy and peace and abounding in hope is a healthy, thriving church. Is this our goal and is this our prayer for missionaries, for world outreach? We read at the end of verse 12 that in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles have hope. And and then Paul goes on and he prays for this Gentile church. Oh, that you may be filled with this hope so so that they would be filled with joy and peace in the midst of a corrupt, defiled society. May you abound in hope as you try, as, as you try to reach this fallen society. And such joy and peace is built on what? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, we read. This joy is grounded in faith, it springs from their beliefs. And an important question here then is what is their belief? What are they believing? We could say that this belief is the gospel and that the gospel is definitely, it's definitely important in this setting. 
that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins, and then he conquered the grave three days later. That has to be at the basis of it. It's definitely important in the setting, but I believe that belief here is a confidence in what proceeds in this passage, what we have already seen about God's plan for Gentiles. It's a belief that God has a plan, and it included his son. And just as he confirmed with four Old Testament passages that God would do what he says, that he, he intends to complete this work. And what Paul does in this passage, the beginning of this passage, is he says just very clearly, Christ became a minister to the circumcision, and the main reason is so that the Gentile might glorify God. And you know what? Paul is a very good expository preacher, because he doesn't just leave that statement hanging out there as an apostle saying, I'm an apostle, listen to me. He says, you know what? Let me show you scripture for this. And he takes four Old Testament statements, and he says this was God's intention the entire time. Look at your Old Testament, it's there. Look at the Abrahamic covenant. The climax of the Abrahamic covenant isn't just about Abraham or just about Israel. It's that all people can glorify God. So the belief here takes us back to the beginning of the passage. It's a belief that God has a plan and it included his son and just as he confirmed with four Old Testament passages, it is God's intent to finish this work. They must believe that God will do what he says, that he will glorify himself in this Gentile heathen environment. You're sending three men out this week to South Africa. I have a dear friend, Bill and Sue Knipe. They just returned to South Africa last week. They left the sun just as we are behind to study. They're struggling. He wrote me this week, and you, you could tell he was looking for encouragement. And this is what I gave him. I, I don't want to scare any of the wives of the men that are traveling in South Africa. South Africa is not a safe country like America, at least. It's not as dangerous as some places. And I won't tell you all the stories that Bill has told me, but it's not a safe place. They do have a, a wall around their house for protection. When you live in a society like that as a missionary, what hope do you have? When you leave children behind, what hope do you have? Why are you doing it? And we're doing it because God will fulfill his promises that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And the belief that he really will do this brings his people a real peace and joy even when the society around them seems totally against what they're doing. Throughout the history of missions, this hope, this belief that God does what he intends in the lives of lost men has driven men to faithful service. I'm sure you've heard of this guy. Your pastor has written quite a bit about him. David Brainerd. A missionary to the American Indians in the early part of the 18th century, and he wrote in his diary and explains how he ministered to the Indians and why he did the things he did and the way he did them. And many thoughts, I thought that this mission work to the Indians was a lost cause. And as Brainerd was lying in the house of his father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards, dying of tuberculosis, he wrote, I had a strong hope that God would bow down the heavens and come down and do a marvelous work among the heathen. That is why I did what I did. I had a strong hope. 
Fifty years later, we find a Baptist pastor in Kettering named Andrew Fuller. He's one of the men who worked to send William Carey to India. Some of you might remember that Carey spoke of the mission's work as a deep chasm into which a missionary should descend. And he said to Andrew Fuller and others, I will go down, but you must hold the ropes. And Fuller was one of the men that held the ropes of prayer for Carey. And Fuller also wrote about hope. He wrote, hope is one of the principal springs that keeps mankind in motion. It causes man to encounter dangers and endure hardships and surmount difficulties innumerable in order to accomplish the desired end. In religion, it is of no less consequence. It makes a considerable part of the religion of those who truly fear God. He's saying hope is a principal part of our beliefs, an expectation that God does what he says. Seventy-five years later, we find Robert Moffat in Africa, and he writes, I long to be engaged in the blessed work of saying to the heathen, Behold your God. Don't think that the future scenes cast me down. No, I go full of hope. And this must be the mentality of missionaries or really of anyone who is striving to spread the gospel. We cannot have the attitude that the world is, is too far gone, that God can't do anything in this world anymore. We know that with the progression of time before the return of Christ, things will get worse and worse, but we cannot let this drive us to the point where we no longer believe that the Lord can no longer do his work. Our hope that keeps us striving for the gospel is that Jesus Christ became a servant so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Verse 9 is our hope. Christ did what he did to fulfill God's plan, and that plan leads to the nations worshiping God. So we declare and praise him among the Gentiles. And we sing his name. Verse 9, the Gentiles will rejoice with God's people. Verse 10, they will praise the Lord and all the people will extol him. Verse 11, and the root of Jesse will rule the Gentile and they will hope in him. Are we convinced that this is God's plan? When we are, then we will have an expectation and we will pray for the fulfillment of that expectation. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Despite what heathen land you come from, despite the sinful surroundings, be filled with joy and peace. Through God's work in you, through his Holy Spirit, may you abound in hope. Not just get by, not just faithfully serve with a fatalistic attitude, but abound in hope. Do you believe that God wants to save people and that he has done and is doing what it takes for Gentiles to glorify him? If we are really convinced of what Paul is stating and praying here, if it's really our desire to see God give people this type of joy and peace and hope despite where they live, then I believe we'll respond to this if it's truly our belief. 
We'll respond first of all through prayer. Prayer that God would do this in our church and in the churches of our missionaries and in churches and nations like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and China. That he would give this kind of peace and joy to believers in North Korea. Do you believe God can do that? And in places like former East Germany. When we believe that God has a plan and will fulfill it, then we will pray with confidence that he would do his work in the hearts of his people, that they would thrive in joy and peace despite what they face in daily lives, life. But further, when we are really convinced, when we believe and are truly confident this is God's intention, then we will also be busy spreading the message that Christ died for sinners and that he has, a planned, he has planned it so that the Gentile might be able to glorify him. And he will fill them with joy and peace. And when we pray and act, then we will see people saved. Why? Because it's not our acting that saves people, it's God's work that he's promised to do. We will see Gentiles glorify him. We will see churches planted, and these churches will not only survive, they will thrive. They will experience true joy and peace. They will abound in hope. They will grow, and as Paul says in the next verse, they will have a testimony of true believers filled with goodness, and they will grow in the knowledge of the Lord and be filled with all knowledge, and they will even be able to, independent of missionary or outside help, they will be able to instruct one another. Do we have confidence that God wants to do this in the hearts of unsaved heathen people? Then how do we respond to what we believe? Christ came. He lived as a servant. He fulfilled the prophecies. But to what end? He proved God's faithfulness to everything he has said, and that faithfulness includes the ultimate purpose that the Gentiles will glorify him for his mercy. God will do this. And when we believe, then our service to God as a, as a test, is a testimony to the lost world around us, and it will not just be a faithful and consistent testimony. It will be full of joy and peace, and we will abound in hope with the expectation that God will do exactly as he said. That is the hope of missions. Not that we can accomplish something, but that God can accomplish something through us and that he will do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promises of the Old Testament that we see fulfilled in Christ, that he came, that he served, that he died, and that he rose again. But Father, we thank you that this isn't just some blind belief with no real practical side to it. We thank you, Lord, that this really, this gospel really has the ability to change the hearts and lives of people, that people in a dark and dying world, people that are hopeless and desperate and in despair can be changed 
that they can glorify God for his mercy and through this belief, through this new faith that they have come to in Jesus Christ, that they have a true peace and joy. Father, we pray for churches worldwide today that are ministering in desperate situations. Some will be meeting still today and just outside their doors is danger. Father, give them joy and peace as they come together. Help them to help them to thrive and to be full of hope and peace and joy. Help us, Father, that we have a real faith, a true faith. Help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do with the knowledge that you will accomplish your purposes. In your son's name we pray, amen.